We're starting a whole new series, it's a great time to do it since it's Easter, but uh, the last six weeks we had gone through and talked about the seven deadly sins, the things that kill us slowly. And you say, Aaron, that was six weeks, seven deadly sins. I know, because we are overachievers. Six weeks, seven, six weeks for seven sins, we got, took care of it. We went for six weeks, we talked about what God has called us from. Now we get to take seven weeks and talk about what God has called us to. And I tell you what, what he's called us to is amazing. It is awesome stuff. And so uh, the series is called Called. It's a sevenfold calling for every Christian. What is it that God has called us to? What is this, this new life that he has for us? And so we're going to talk about the very first of that this morning. And that's that we have been called to live. And not just to be alive. I mean, that's nice, because we are dead in sin, we're going to talk about that. And, and being alive is great, but he's called us to much more than that. He's called us to live. There's a life he has for us, much better than anything that we've ever had in the past. In fact, today's memory verse, which we get to do every week, uh, talks about this. Today's memory verse is from 2 Timothy 1.9, and it says this, He has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now you see, he saved us. That's good. But he did more than that. He called you to a holy life. Holy means different, right? Different than everything. Like, think about your toothbrush. Your toothbrush is holy unto thee, right? Because it's set apart. You just don't let somebody else use your toothbrush, do you? You don't use your toothbrush to scrub this kitchen sink or anything else. Right? Your, your toothbrush is holy. It's set apart for better things. And God has set you apart to a whole different kind of life, a life so different than what this world has for us. This is amazing stuff. He saved you, but he didn't just save you. He's called you to a holy life. So let's say it again. Let's, let's say it. Here we go. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. 2 Timothy 1.9. You said that with such confidence. Let's test ourselves. Here we go. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. 2 Timothy 1.9. Very good. Isn't that powerful? We're going to talk about that holy life for the next seven weeks. What has he called us to? And it is amazing things. But first, we've got to start the very where it begins. And it begins with something called good news. I hope that you came here today expecting good news or needing good news because that's what we have. Easter is all about good news. Why everybody's cheerful. It's why we get up in the morning and we're like, woohoo! It's why we, even me who likes the evenings and not the mornings, will we'll go to a sunrise service and be happy. Right? Good news. You see, the church was begun on good news. And, and it, it grows on good news. And I think for all of us in this world, we, we get so brought down by the news of this world, this not holy living, that I think we're thirsty for it. And we need it. And there's good news for us. You know, there's a word that's used in the church that uh, unfortunately, it's, it's usually tied with the church, which is a great thing. But unfortunately, it's not always tied with good news, which is a shame because it literally means good news. And the word is gospel. Gospel literally means good news. That's what God has for us. And that's what we grow on. That's the most important thing. God has good news for us. The church doesn't exist to make you a certain way to tell you how to live and all that kind of stuff. It's not why we're here. God changes us. Yeah, 
He does. But that's not why we exist. We're not here. We don't have a message of, of, of imprisonment. We have a message of freedom. God has given us a message of good news. And we're going to talk about what is that good news today. What is the good news that we have in Christ? Well, the first thing that we have in the good news may be a little counterintuitive. The good news of the gospel starts with this. You're not good enough. And you say, Aaron, that's lousy news. But is it? You see, before I became a Christian, I went and investigated the five major world religions. I went and worshipped with the people at their places of worship, studied their religious texts, talked to their clergy, tried to understand how and is, what is this, uh, where is God? And what does he want? And I'll tell you something about my experience in going through that and why one of the reasons I came to Christ. Every other faith system out there says do. You've got to do things. Do this, do this, do this, do this. And if you do it all perfect, maybe, just maybe, you might possibly be good enough. It was a constant striving and a work. It was like... It's like a donkey that has a carrot on a stick tall in front of its head. No matter how far he walks, he never gets the carrot. There was never any rest, never any peace. And the reality is, is that I was never good enough. I could hope I was good enough, but I never would get there. Christianity doesn't say do, it says done. And it starts with this, the very good news is something that we all know. We're not good enough. Each one of us has guilt and shame and all those things that we deal with. Every single one of us knows somehow, somewhere, there's a separation between us and God. That's why we go to church. I love the fact the gospel starts with truth. It meets us where we are, and I think there's an amazing thing. Yeah, we're not good enough. But maybe you're like me. When I first heard that, I was offended. Because I said, wait a second, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm such a good guy that I looked for God and I was willing to go to all kinds of different religions and try to find Him. I'm a pretty moral person. And the Scripture set me free from that trap. Look what it says in the Scripture about being good enough. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. Well, that pretty much included me. It pretty much includes you. Aren't you glad that when you're here today, you're not the only sinner? Have you ever gone to a church afraid, feeling like you're not holy enough to be there with the other people? The gospel sets you free from that and says, yeah, duh. None of us are holy enough. That's where it begins. All have sinned. Now, it's not great that we all have sinned, but I think part of it, at least it starts with the fact that I can look across and say, you know what? I belong. I belong here. All have sinned. It's an amazing thing. But, you know, some people say, I know that I've sinned and, and stuff, but, but surely out there there are some people who are righteous enough for God. I mean, you see some really great people out there. The Bible talks about that too. And in a couple of verses before, it says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. That pretty much narrows down the field. There's no one in this world that can be there good enough that says, you know what, God, I deserve heaven. That's, that's kind of hard. But at the same time, it stops us from this crazy delusional thinking that maybe I can hide my sin from God. Maybe I can just be good enough and do enough religious enough things that he will think that I'm the righteous one. He's like, no, he knows exactly where we're at. 
And you say, well, okay, so we're all sinners. Everybody's falling short. What's the big deal? Why does God get so upset about sin? Well, Romans 5 talks about it. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that was Adam and Eve, he said, death and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all because all have sinned. Do you know that you're going to die? I'm sorry, a spoiler alert if you didn't. Um, it does happen. And the thing is, is that it's not just physical death that we suffer because of sin. It's a relational death, an emotional death. You know, sin breaks our world apart. It destroys the very best of what we have. This world was made to be a paradise, and oftentimes it feels like that, and then oftentimes it does not. Have you ever been on your computer, and uh, you're typing on there, and then... You know, it takes a while to download stuff because you have all that antivirus and anti-spyware that's on your computer, right? And the reason that we have that is because there are sinful people out there that want to hack our computers and take all our money, right? So we have all that on there, and so we have this great network and all that kind of stuff that's sitting there, and we're just waiting for things to download, and that little wheel comes up or that little bar, and it's lowing slowly, and there's a little death of the spirit that happens. (laughs) Sin brings death. In the little things, but it also brings death in the big things. The death when your spouse betrays you, or when your business collapses, right? Or when this world rises up and you have some kind of natural disaster, wipes out your downstairs and you didn't ask for it. Death happens when your best friend, you know, stabs you in the back. Sin brings death. But it also brings that death when we're the ones that stab others in the back and we betray and we fail. I've had enough death. I really have had enough death. And I see this, that sin came into this world because of That's why God cares. God didn't design us for death. God is a God of life. He designed us for something better. He warned us, don't do this. It will bring death. And we did it anyway. And guess what we got? Death's not good. That's why it's a big deal to God. But we see this, this amazing message. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God's got to deal with sin and he's got to deal with death. But God is not a corrupt God. When it talks about God being light, John's not saying here that God is phosphorescent. Okay? That's silly. What he's saying here is God is pure. He has absolute wisdom. He has absolute truth. He has absolute righteousness. There is no darkness in him whatsoever. Which means that God is not corrupt, nor is he corruptible. And that is a good thing, isn't it? Can you imagine if God, had, with all that power, was on the throne, was, was like a person? Had all the authority and all the power to do whatever they wanted, but had the capricious will to do whatever they wanted, regardless if it was right? That would be terrifying, wouldn't it? Can you imagine having one being with all of that, with no moral check? A being up there that was corrupt, that would take bribes. You'd be going along, doing your life, doing everything that you thought was right, and that person's like, that being said they wanted, and they could just destroy you. One that could take bribes and, and be bought off. It's amazing that our God is a God that cannot be corrupted, and He's not corruptible. And because he is good, he will always do what is good. And because he is righteous, he will always do what is right. So think about that. 
Let's just say this morning that uh, before we leave, I'm like, get done with this worship service, and, and I don't know, I get a wild hair in me, and I say, I'm going to take off before everybody else leaves, right? So I run out, and I get into my car, and I throw it in reverse, and bam, I back into your car. Just smash it badly. And then I'm like, ha, 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 you can't get me. And then I peel out, and I go off into town, right? I'm, right? And I'm like, come get me, coppers, right? Just like that. <laughs> and of course, the coppers come get me, and they arrest me, And they bring me to a judge, and now your car, your car is totaled. You can't drive anywhere, right? Because of what I did. And I go before the judge, and I say to him, I know I'm guilty, but here's some extra cash for you if you, you know, make this go away. And the judge says, "Uh, not guilty. (coughs) Would you feel okay with that? No, you would feel a little bit robbed. See, God's not a corrupt judge. See, even if that judge was my very best friend, would say, guilty, right? How much more a perfect God has got to judge sin? When we're guilty of it, he's got to say, guilty. Our God is a powerful and a right God, and God is light. And God gave us laws, didn't he? I mean, he gave the universe laws, natural laws, and all that kind of stuff. You have gravity and stuff. You never see a planet saying, forget gravity, right? They obey the laws. But he's also given us moral laws. But we do forget those a lot, don't we? And I say, what are these laws? Well, he starts with things like the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, those are pretty big deals, so much so he actually chiseled them into stone so he wouldn't get them wrong, right? And yet we violate those, don't we? So we can consider ourselves a good person, but the reality is we've all violated God's moral law. I mean, let's just look at the Ten Commandments. Start there. Have you ever worshipped another God other than Him? I already just confessed that I had done that, so I've, I've violated like the very first one. But maybe you're, you're a couple steps down on the list. Let me ask you, have you ever lied? Because if you said no, we know you're a liar. <laughs> right? Have you ever cheated somebody? You ever had envy? Right? You ever worked seven days and not taken a day off? All of us have sinned. All of us fall short of God's standard. And because of that, there's a penalty. Now, if you're one of those who says, I don't have sin, it says in John 1, if you claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in you. I love how true the Bible is. It's not like we're hiding this from God. It's not like God's somehow thinking, you know, he's so busy paying attention to everybody else, he doesn't see everything that we do. And then we can be like, oh yeah, I did this thing, but I'll just kind of hide it. And then maybe God won't discover it. But then if we live that kind of life, then what happens is we live in fear because what if God discovers that? I don't think we do it rationally with our minds. We think that's what we're doing, but oftentimes it's how we live. We live really, really rough lives. We, we do things we're knowing we're not supposed to do. And then we try to cover it up by being, you know, look nice to other people. Right? Or try to do something really you know, nice so that God can say, we can say, God, see, I did this amazing thing. We'll make a big offering or, or you know, we'll, we'll buy somebody groceries or something like that. Like that makes up for the fact of everything else that we've done. We're like, God, look at all my other good works. It doesn't matter everything else I have done. Let me ask you, if, how many crimes does it, does it take in order to, to make you from a, a law-abiding citizen to a criminal? How many crimes? One. That's all it takes, right? I mean, if, if I went out today and I just decided, you know what, I, 
I had a bad day. I'm just going to murder one of you. Boom, murdered you. Right? I'm a pretty law-abiding citizen up to this point. Right? And then after that, let's just say, I, you know, I go to the judge. I'm like, man, you know, that was just a bad day. That was a bad decision. I agree. That was a bad decision. I shouldn't have murdered that person. That was a, bad on me. But I'll tell you what. I will be really super good from now on out. Right? And let's say from that point on, I never, I never violate any other law. In fact, I voluntarily, I go into the community and I serve and help other people and all that. Am I no longer a murderer? No. Well, once you've committed the crime, you're a criminal. And we've all committed the crime. And we're a sinner. See, when I look around other people and I say, I'm a better I'm a better person than you. I'm more moral than you. It's like a prisoner in, in you know, the penitentiary looking around at the other prisoners saying, I'm better than that prisoner. And it's like, yeah, you may be, but you're still in prison. Right? We all have sin. Don't deceive yourselves. Don't try to trick yourself that you're good enough. Because then you live a life in prison of trying to be good enough. And you're not going to keep it. And here's the thing here. It says, whoever has, has keeps the whole law and yet stumbles on just one point is guilty of breaking it all. That's the whole point. If you break the law, you're a lawbreaker. And we have a righteous judge who can't say not guilty. Now we move from this and we see that there's a problem to it. It says that the wage of sin is death. Okay, we're not good enough. When we've sinned, there's the not guilty for us. It's this. Because sin brings death, the penalty for sin is death. Crime fits the punishment. That's what it does. Now, we don't think oftentimes that our sins are that bad, but it's our sin has brought all this death into the world. And so the good news starts with this, that no, you're not good enough. And there's nothing that you could ever do to be good enough. And the reason that's such good news is that, well, yeah, we're not good enough, but you don't have to be. See, the gospel starts with this. For the wage of sin is death, yes, and that verse continues, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why we're here today. Right? I mean, you guys wouldn't have gotten up and come out here this morning to hear, you know, here's the message. You're not good enough. You'll all be condemned. All right. Judgment's coming. Have a great day. That's not good news. The good news is this. It starts with you're not good enough. You can stop trying. You can stop trying. The wage of sin is death, yes. And you know what? It was paid. But there's a gift for us, eternal life. God is a powerful, wonderful God. Now we see that salvation is God's gift to you. If I don't deserve it, how do I get it? Well, just like everything else that I don't deserve that I get, it's a present. Right? Think about the difference between gifts and wages. Wages you earn. It says the wage of sin is death. So when you go to work and you bring that home that paycheck, it's not as though that your boss or your employer is just being really, really generous, Right? When you get your paycheck, you're not like, oh, I thank you so much. That was so generous of you. You're like, no, thank you. I earned that. And if they decide not to give it to you, you're going to have problems, right? But we don't deserve what God has given us. Instead, it's a gift. Presents, gifts are never deserved. If they were, well, they wouldn't be gifts at all. I remember one of my, the best gifts that Amy ever gave me. And that's when we were first married and we were, you know, 19 and 21, and we were poor, and we were living in this little apartment, right? And I was working for my dad as an electric, electrician, and uh, Amy, uh, 
she decides she's going to do something real special for me for my birthday because birthdays are a big deal in my family. You know, I feel like there should be a parade and all that, but there yet hasn't been. But uh, <laughs> there should be, <laughs> right? And so it's going to be a big deal. And I'm like, well, what are we going to do? So um, she called my dad without me knowing and got me the day off work. And uh, then she uh, turned off the alarm clock without me knowing so I could sleep in because I hate mornings. I know it's hard to believe, but I don't enjoy them. And then, um, so I, I woke up, I slept in, and when you're in your 20s, you can really sleep in. Like, uh, you remember that? That was so great. And I wake up, ah, and I look at the clock, and I'm like, oh, no, because I thought, oh, this is not the way to start your birthday. She's like, no, it's good. And there was breakfast already there and bed and all that kind of stuff. Now, I didn't earn that. That's why it was so special. In fact, I did the opposite of earning it. I slept through when I was supposed to work. But Amy gave me something that I didn't deserve. You know, God gives us something that we, that we don't deserve. But first, he doesn't give us what we do deserve, which is the part of the gift. We deserve the guilty. We deserve the punishment. We deserve death. And, and instead of giving us that, he, we do, he says, I'm not going to give you death. That's what you deserve. That's what we call mercy, when we don't get what we deserve. And God gives us so much mercy. But he doesn't stop there. See, it would be more than enough for God to say, I'm just going to pay the penalty for your crimes. And and so you don't have to. And then he could have left us as orphans. We already abandoned him. That would already be more than what we deserve, wouldn't it? I mean, he could have saved us and then walked away and said, all right, good luck now. Even then, he would have been amazing, but he didn't just give us mercy. He gave us grace. He gave us what we didn't deserve. He gave us a new life in him, a holy life, a different kind of life. He gave us a place in his family. Do we deserve that? No, but we got it. That's a pretty awesome gift. That's some pretty good news. We have been heavily graced. And it says here, the wages of death, but the gift of God. God is a gift for all of us. That is amazing. Now, how did he give us that gift and still be just? We're still sinners. Well, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. It's like this. You're at McDonald's and you're going to purchase a sin burger. I mean a double quarter pounder with cheese. Right? And you're there. And I'm standing behind you in line. And it's going to take all of your money to purchase that quarter pounder with cheese. And I have compassion on you. And I say to the person that's going to ring you up, I say, excuse me, is it okay for me to buy your burger? And you say, why, yes, that would be nice. And then I pay for the burger. Now, can the McDonald's clerk charge you for that burger? No, it's been paid for. Right? That's what God has done. He's paid for our crimes. That's why he died. The penalty, the wage of sin is death. Guess what Jesus did? Died. That's what he did. He paid the penalty. Voluntarily, willingly said, I'm going to take on the price, the cost for your crime. He paid the penalty for not just your sins, but all sins. How could he do this? Because he was more than just a man. One human has one life, right? One sin costs how much? One life. That's what death is. If Jesus was just a man, he could only die for one person's one sin. But I don't know about you, but I've sinned more than once. I've bought way more than one sin burger, right? And you can tell. The reason Jesus could do that is because he's got a much thicker wallet. See, he's not just man, he is God, and God has infinite life. 
Now let's go back into high school math. If you have infinity and you subtract a thousand, how much do you still have? Infinity. That's the magic of infinity. And if you have infinity and you subtract a trillion, how much do you have? Infinity. Let's say you have infinite number of books, half of them are blue, and you decide, I hate blue books, and you throw them all away. How many books do you still have? Infinite number of books. That's the magic of infinity. Now, Jesus is God. God has eternal life. And God paid for every single one of our sins. Every single one. Could he do it? His infinite life. Well, I'll tell you what. As much as I've sinned, I haven't sinned infinitely. I lack that capacity because I'm a finite being. Aren't you? He could pay for all of them. Every single one of them. Now, let's go back to McDonald's. Let's just say I'm going to buy your burger. It's five bucks. I give him a 20. What do I get back? Change. Right? That's what I get. Now, Jesus, he went to the cross and he said, I will pay that tab of all the sins for all mankind. Boom, he dies. Pays for all of it. And let's just say it costs 162 trillion sins. That's how many sins, right? But he gives a trillion dollar bill. How much does he get in return? Infinite. He paid 162 trillion lives and he gets infinite life in return, which is why he raised from the dead. That's why we know he's God. Only God is infinite. But also this means is he fully paid for every one of your sins. Every one. It's not as though his pocket, he ran out of, of funds. He paid for them all. And he got his change back. And he was no less diminished. That's the brilliance of God. Your sins have been paid for. Look what it says here in Romans. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were still ordering burgers at the counter. And he said, you know what? Before we even walked up in there, he said, I'm going to pay for their, their sins. I'm going to pay for their burgers. While we're still his enemy, while we're still poking God in the eye, he's saying, you know what? I want to forgive you. While he was being nailed to the cross, he was saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Anybody who thinks you've got to be good enough to come to church doesn't understand church. It starts out, you're not good enough. None of us are. That's why we're here. And we have a God that didn't expect us to be good enough. He is a God who came for us because we're not good enough. He came to us while we were still his enemies. And he says, I will make you children. He's an amazing God. He looked out for our best before we even knew we needed it. But you know that passage, it goes on. Verse 9, it says this. Since we have now been justified by his blood. That means he paid for the price. Since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Now, oftentimes we just read through that last part and we forget how amazing it is. Let's just say I backed into your car. Let's say a 16-year-old, right, we're leaving today, backs in your car, bam, messes it up. Right? And then they give you insurance and the parents pay for it. Right? And the kids got to work for it. And, and you have to go back in and it's kind of a hassle, but your car kind of gets set up again. And so it's been justified. It's been paid. Right? You still have a level of wrath towards that kid, don't you? Like the next time you see him driving in the street, you're like, bad driver. Right? There's a separation between you and them. A little bit like, I don't trust you. A little bit of disapproval in your eyes as you look at them. Right? If people hurt you, it's not just a matter of just, you know, recon- uh, making things uh, equal, right? If I punch you in the eye, and then you punch me in the eye, we may be, you know, equal. There might be a justice there, but there's no reconciliation. There's still probably anger, right? There's still wrath. Now, Scripture says that when we sin, it's like committing adultery against God. 
That's how he feels emotionally. There's wrath there. It hurts. And there's a separation that we have from God. And he didn't just pay for the penalty. Look what he did. He saved us from God's wrath. There's a weird word in the New Testament that's used to describe this. It's called propitiation. And we don't use it very much because it's hard to say and worse to spell. Right? But what it means is God took his wrath and turned, the wrath that was directed at you, and he turned it to something else. In fact, he turned it on himself. See, when Jesus was on the cross, he didn't just take the weight of all of our sins. He took the full blow of God's anger. And the reason he did that was so that God's anger could turn away from you. Now, only God can do this. People can't do that. But God was able to take his anger and fully expend it on Christ, which is why the cross was so violent. But what this means is that God isn't mad at you. God's not disappointed in you. God's not going to be up there in heaven someday, up there like, well, you've been justified, but I know what you did. It says in Scripture that he removes your sin as far as east is from west. He doesn't remember it anymore. That's what it means. It means that you've been saved not just from the, 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 the justice of God, but also his, his righteous anger. God loves you. You've been reconciled. It's like two friends who got in a fight, right? And when they come together and then they work it out, and now there's nothing left between them, and nothing standing between them, and there's just a good relationship again. That's what you have with God. We've been reconciled to God. He paid the penalty. All of it. Not just the justice portion, but the emotion portion. God did it all. That's good news. Now why did he do it? Because he loves you. This to me is really important. What was God's motivation? Does he need you and me? No, because he could just create new people, couldn't he? Really easy. He doesn't need us. He's got the angels. He's got all that stuff. He's got himself, the whole triune thing working together. I don't know how that works. blows my brain up. But he gets to know himself. He's perfectly fine and content without us. But he says, I want you. He did it because he loved us. That wonderful verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God loves you. You need to hear that because oftentimes we don't love ourselves. But I'll tell you, if I have to listen between you and God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust God. You are lovely. God sees value in you. He loves you deeply. It was that kind of love that allowed Jesus to say, I want to take your place. Knowing every evil act, every word, every evil thought that you would ever commit. He says, I know who you are and I know what you're going to do and I love you still. You don't have to try to pretend to be somebody different for God to love you deeply. What powerful love. I mean, he loves you unconditionally, even to the point of death. Even when you're at your worst, while you were still his enemy, God loves you. There is nothing that you could possibly do to make God love you less or more. He loves you with an infinite, powerful love. How do you receive that love? Well, it tells us the good news is that salvation is by grace through faith, and I think that's amazing. God gives us grace. We are saved because of God. And all he expects from us is simple faith. Faith! It says to Ephesians 2.8, For it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves as a gift of God. It goes on to say, Not by works so that other people can boast. It's not about being good enough. It's not your faith isn't about, oh, I've, 
I've done these things just right, so now God will love me. God loves you. And he says, have faith. Now, what is faith? Faith is a weird thing, isn't it? We talk about it, but it's not like you can say, here's my faith, right? You can't just carry it around in a basket. You're like, hey, I've got my faith, right? What is faith? It's like a nebulous thing. Well, I'll tell you what, things. faith is trusting that which we have not seen yet. Something we haven't fully proven. And faith is not just for the spiritual world, it is for life. For example, every single one of you walked in here today and sat down on those seats by faith. Which of you actually, scientifically, took apart the seats? Make sure I didn't put like little stickies on, in the seats or cushions or something like that. Or make sure that the screws were strong enough and test the metal you know, that it could actually hold your weight. Did any of you do that? You didn't prove it. You just trusted it. And you sat down. And you put your whole weight into there. You put your, your health into the hands of something that you just had faith in. Right? And your pride, because you sit in the chair and it falls flat, that's kind of embarrassing. You exercised great faith this morning just by coming and sitting down, and you probably didn't even know it. Now, let's just say that a person doesn't have faith, and they have to go and to, to test every single chair before they sit in it, and every single floorboard before they walk on it, and every single screw in their car before they get into a car. You know there's a word for a person like that? Crazy. Right? We need faith. We live with faith all day long. The question is, we have faith. The question is, the faith that we have, is it reasonable? And that's the amazing thing about our God is he gave us a reasonable faith. Just like sitting on the chair, it makes sense to sit in the chair. You see other people do it. It's been doing it for a long time. It's designed for that. It's, it seems to be proven. It was reasonable to sit in it. We have a God who gave us reasonable faith. He started with, thousands of years before he came, he had a plan how he was going to save us. He gave us over 300 prophecies, written, some of them over a thousand years before he came. Where he would be born, what he'd be called, what he would do, how he would die, even what the people around him would say as he died, and what would happen to his clothes as he died, and when he would come back, all of these things. And every single prophecy fulfilled to the letter. You just don't make that stuff up. God did that so we would know for confidence that this is the Messiah. Not only did he do that, but then think about how he died. Our faith, so different than others, it wasn't born in a cave. It wasn't a trust me story. It wasn't some prophet walked out of a cave and said, Hey, I heard from God. Believe me. God came to earth and he did things that people can't do in public. He healed blind people. He healed people that couldn't walk for like 10, 20, 30 years. He healed people that were dead and stinking in their graves for days and brings them forth. He did things that people can't do. He quiets the waters and the storms. He walks on the water. He turns water into wine. I tell you what, a lot of people have been trying to do that. People can't do this stuff. He did it publicly, out and about so everybody could see it. And he drew huge crowds. But if that wasn't enough, after he died, he came back. And he didn't just come back. He didn't just like, like you know, Peter and, and Thomas and something were like hiding in a room and, and they're like walking by the, the, the linen closet and then they hear a psst. Like, Jesus? That's not how it happened. There was a big old angel sitting on top of the thing. Why are you looking for the dead here? He's alive. And he shows up amongst them. 40 days. That's a long time to have an hallucination. Thousands of people saw him and he did all kinds of cool stuff while they were around. 
He did cool things like he walked through a door so that I could know he was like more than natural. I think that's pretty cool and a little spooky. But he also did things as he like ate with them so he knew that he actually was raised in the real flesh. 40 days. So they would know for confidence that what he's claimed is actually true. And then he gave us the commission. You see, we have a reasonable faith and it says this, that we have by grace through faith, we can have salvation. Now how is that faith Faith is not just a nebulous thing. It's a thing that the, the gospels say and, and the, the, the New Testament tells us. It's something that has to have action. Abraham had faith and he moved. Noah had faith and he built a boat. God tells us we have to have faith. And this is how he says, if you have faith, this is what you're supposed to do. Just like if you have faith, your pants are on fire, you're going to put your pants out, right? Or take them off, right? What are we supposed to do? It says, if you have faith, the first thing you're supposed to do is express that faith and belief. And a lot of people get those two mixed up. The difference between faith and belief is this. Uh, belief... Is an expression of faith. Not all faith is belief. Belief is an ascent of the mind. It's saying, even despite doubts, even though I don't know everything, because none of us will, all, will ever know it all. All of us will always have some doubts and things that we just can't figure out. But it's saying, despite, I know enough that this is reasonable. I'm going to trust it. It's a decision of the will of the mind to say, I'm going to follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm going to trust that he paid the penalty for me. That's an act of faith. It also says that we're supposed to then, if we have that, if we believe that he really is God and he really did save us from our sins, we're supposed to actually live like that's what happened. That's called repentance. Repentance is a change of my life. I used to live one way, now I live in obedience to God. Perfect obedience? No, I wish. Growing obedience? Absolutely. It's a bending of my will to his. And it says that's an act of faith, just I believe that he did it. And it also says this, we're supposed to confess now, confession isn't like magic words. It's not like you can like force somebody, hey, confess. And they're like, I believe Jesus is the Savior and all that. And they're like, okay, now you're saved and you can take a gun to somebody else. It's not how it works. It's not hocus pocus. Confession is an identification with. When the Broncos play, I put on my Broncos jersey. Why do I do that? Because I identify with them. I'm like, I am not a Chiefs fan. No one will ever think I'm a Chiefs fan because I have my Broncos jersey on, right? Them, me, we're together. And God says, I want you to confess me before other people. I want you to identify with me. And I tell you what, if I know that Jesus is really God and he's coming back and he saved me, I want to be with him. I'm proud to be with him. Now, my confession by itself doesn't save me. If I don't have any faith that Jesus really raised for the dead, it's not like magic fire insurance. I'll just say these things just as a hocus pocus, maybe I'll be saved. It's like this. If I don't have faith, I could get like a big old tattoo, like Jesus is Lord on my chest, you know. And, and I could put bumper stickers all over my car, you know, obnoxious Christian bumper stickers and things like that. And I could wear Christian clothes and I could have listen to Christian music and I could say Christian things all the time like God bless you brother and things like that. Right? I could do that. And if I had no faith, those things, that confession doesn't save me because confession doesn't save me. God saves me by his grace through faith. In fact, just doing all those things without faith just makes me really annoying. You ever met somebody like that? But by faith, if I really believe that Jesus is Lord... I want to identify with him, not by the things I put on, but my very life. And God says there's another way he wants us to identify with me. He says, I want you to be baptized. Why? I have no idea. He doesn't explain it. And there's some things that we get from it, but I think part of it is, how do you know you have enough belief or repentance or confession? Those are kind of, you know, subjective things. I think baptism is pretty objective. It's like, have I been baptized? Yep, I have. Right? Right, but it's a baptism by faith. If I well on faith, baptism just is a weird bath in front of a lot of people. But if it's an expression of faith, it's appeal to God for a clean conscience. 
If I do it for that reason, it's very powerful. Expression of faith. But you know, it doesn't stop there. God says, you know what? I also want you to be discipled. There's not a difference between saving faith and sanctifying faith. I can't find one in Scripture. It just says, be saved and grow in Christ. Grow in Christ. Can you imagine if a baby was born? Parents were so excited. They're going to have a baby. And they have this little tiny baby. And, and the, the mom gives birth. And it's a beautiful birth. And everybody, they, they're all so happy. And they hold it up. And they're like, oh, you like the whole like, Lion King thing. And they're like, oh, it's a baby. And everybody claps. And it's so good. And they're like, oh, that's so great. And they set the baby down. It's like, okay, let's go have another one. And they forget about the other baby. Would that be horrible? So when you were born again into Christ, you were born so much more than just to be born. You were born into a family to grow. That's what you were called to do. That's why we are, we are disciples of Jesus that build disciples of Jesus. That's the much more of our faith. That's what Jesus called us to. He didn't die on the cross so that we could live flat lives. He didn't die so we could just be alive in the Spirit. He died so we could live. He's called you to a holy life. A powerful life. And we're going to talk about that life over the next six weeks. About exactly what is this life? What has He called us to? What is the sevenfold calling of every believer What does it mean to grow up in Christ and have purpose? And it's going to be an exciting time, but first we start with this today. That you have been saved. Right? The good news of Christ says this, is that that we are not good enough. That is really great news, isn't it? Isn't it great news that you can sit here today, I don't have to be good enough. That my God is good enough. Not only are you not good enough at salvation, that is a free gift to you. Free means you didn't earn it. You don't have to. It is there. It's available for you. No matter where you've been or what you've done, it's yours. That Christ paid the penalty for our sins. He's a righteous God. And there is not one sin that's lingering out there that's ever going to come back to you. There are no skeletons left in your closet. They have been cleaned out. Christ has paid the penalty. We also learn that God did this because He loves you. And that salvation is is by grace through faith. If you want salvation, God says it's your gift, but you've got to receive it through faith. And that's really great news. That it's not, you don't have to climb some mountain. You don't have to do some kind of crazy thing in order to earn it. You just have to receive it. And he tells us how to receive it. You need to believe, confess, repent, be baptized, go be discipled, live the new life, enjoy the gift. The good news is for all of us. So as we wrap this, this particular message up, I'll ask you to take out your connection cards, that, that lovely green card that's in your bulletin, and flip it around to that back side. Because I know that faith has to be put in action, right? Otherwise it just sits and rots. We need to do something with it. If you don't understand that what God has done for you, there's some steps that we want to take, some things that we want to start walking in that, because it's true. So on the back side it says, this week I commit to. And there's a couple of suggestions that I have as some next steps. The first one is this. Why don't you start by memorizing 2 Timothy 1.9? Maybe you were brought into the faith and were ab- abandoned as an infant. You are no longer an orphan of the faith. You have a family here. You need to realize that the Christian life is so much more than just having some type of dedication while you were a child or having some type of, of conversion experience and then that's it. God has called you to live a much more full life, a holy life, a different life. And you know, maybe we need not just listen to me on that, but maybe this week, let God's Word talk to you about what does that mean. Think about what does it mean to live a holy life, a different life. What has He called me to? So maybe this week you say, I'm going to commit to memorizing 2 Timothy 1.9. And if you want to do that, there's that memory verse card that's there to help you. Or how about this? Maybe you want to read the Gospel of Mark. 
Because when we say we're disciples of Jesus, we follow him. Right? And what better way of learning what Jesus did than actually look at what he actually did? And so we have the Gospel of Mark. Mark was a disciple or was a, was a follower of Jesus, as was Peter, who was his mentor. After Jesus died and, and raised again, they went and they wrote down what Jesus did and what he said, so we would know. And that's the Gospel of Mark. And if you want to see what Jesus said, what did he do? Read that. It might show you something about this amazing life he's called us to. Or how about this? Maybe today you say, you know what, I want that gift. Well, then I invite you. Here's what God tells you. Maybe you need to believe. Or repent, or confess, or be baptized, or be discipled. You need living faith in your life. And if that's you, I invite you. That's, it's an opportunity. Let me know. Because I'm, I'm guaranteed that if you're there, you've got questions, and you're like, what, is, what happens next? And I'll tell you this, that faith is like a baby is not born in secret and then left to rot. If you come to faith, we want to help you grow up in the faith. I need to know as a pastor, so let me know. If you want to express faith, let me know. Check that link sure I have your connection stuff. We'll talk to you this week. We'll get together. We'll help you take those steps of faith. We'll help you grow. Or maybe you're here this morning. You say, you know what? I've been a believer. I'm, I'm, I'm in the faith. But I won't know what I've been called to. No one's told me yet. Well, I'll tell you, the scriptures talk about it, and there's a whole, so much more. This holy life is called an amazing thing. So maybe for you is to attend those next six weeks and say, you know what, I'm going to make this commitment for my spirit, for, for what God has. I'm going to come this next six weeks and say what God has for us. What has he called us to? Or maybe there's a different commitment that you need to make. You can write it down there on that bottom line. As a pastor, I'd love to pray for you and support you in what you're doing. If there's another commitment you need to make on this side, let me know. Also, if you have a prayer request, you know that I pray for each one of you every week and it's a great joy for me to do that. It really helps for me to know what to pray. And so if you've got a prayer request, uh, write it down. Know that it will be lifted this week. And God's done some really awesome things these last couple of years as we've been uh, praying to him. Has he? I mean, really cool stuff. All right, so in a minute, we're going to take our offering. Uh, and as we take our offering, take those connection cards, put them in the offering basket as it's passed as an offering to you. Now, as we take the offering, we're going to have this very special thing. We have a baby a child dedication today. And so uh, as that's being passed, don't, uh, we'll, we'll do that after the baskets are passed here. And then uh, we'll have, finish up with a little worship. All right, let's pray for our offerings first. Father God, thank you for you. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for dying so that we could live. Thank you for paying the price that none of us could pay so that we could have that which we could never earn anyway. Thank you for setting us free from the lie of self-righteousness. God, thank you for the gift of true righteousness in Christ. God, I pray that you would help us as a church, as a community, to grow in faith and faithfulness. Let us be people of good news. Thank you for setting us free. And now that we are free, Father, may we grow boldly and, 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 uh, and healthy in Christ. Father, these commitments we make today, I pray that you would help us to keep them in a way that honors you, that changes us, transforms us from the inside out. Father, I also pray for our tithes and our offerings that we get to bring today. May they be an investment in your great kingdom. May they grow love in our hearts in this church, but also, Father, may they give us the ability and opportunity to share your love with our community in real and practical and life-changing ways. And Father, in all these things, we're grateful that we can even pray this prayer, that we have a God, although you are just and though that we have violated your commands and all those things, you'd never abandon us. In fact, you said, I love you. That you died on the cross for our sins and that you rose again. And so we know that we can believe and we can be saved. 
So with great joy that we celebrate the resurrection today and the wonderful name of the Savior who is forever alive. We pray, amen.